So we are going to spend some time on Pelegesh Begevel. We'll try to go in deep, try to do this properly. Uh, there's a lot here. It's a rather tragic, I feel like I've been saying that too often, in the <laughs> but it is. Uh, it's all tragic and just gets more tragic. So uh, we'll continue on that trajectory. And uh, yeah, so we, yeah, we'll begin. Vahibi Yamahim, and it was in those days. And again, those days are hotly debated what those days are. According to many of the classical Mepharshim, these days are actually prior to the era of the Shoftim. According to the Radak um, and the Barbanel, these are actually at the tail end of the Shoftim. And the Barbanel understanding that actually during the lifetime, but during the jail time of Shimshon, all of this is actually taking place. Okay? So... Either this is meant to be in the beginning of the book, or really it is taking place over here. Okay, Melech and Bistral, there is no king among the Jewish people. Vahi Esh Levi, there is a Levite, a Levi man, Gar Biyarkase Har Ephraim, who lives at the edges of Har Ephraim. Vayikach lo Isha Pilegesh mi Beis Lechem Yehuda. And he took for himself a Pilegesh from Beis Lechem, which, as we pointed out before, there are two Beis Lechems, two Bethlehems, and this is the more famous of the two. There's the Beis Lechem, which is in the Judean territory. Okay, so one thing you'll find in this entire story is anonymity, which many see as a way of reflecting a society without personal identities. People don't have names. And again, this is not a class on Rus, but one thing that we find emphasized in Rus is Vikari Shemobi Israel. The words that we actually say during uh, Bris when we actually name a child, is, those words are taken from Rus. It's a, it's a book where people's personal identities play a prominent role. Everyone is named and everyone is given names and people who have been forgotten are recalled. Right? There's a lot about just kind of making sure that names are never lost. Uh, this last story, which co- finishes the story, the book of, of Shoftim, it speaks of no people. Okay? Um, Can we, because uh, this is a second story that starts with the, um, you know, from Har Ephraim and then also involves Levi. Yeah. We do say it, it, it does correspond to the spiritual level because we learned from, you know, uh, to like last part, that Ephraim was the, from an actual word, there's two, two that kept their identity as Jews in Egypt when everything is surrounding them. Mm-hmm. And, Le- and Levi was supposed to be that spiritual mm-hmm. guy. So now those two things are coming just falling down. Right, excellent. And, and Yehuda, and Yehuda, who is supposed to be the leader. Excellent, right? So there's certain, clearly excellent, excellent points, right? And that and two two very important points. One is that the 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 details are oddly similar, right? In the last story, Pesel Micha, there was a Levi, and he came from Beis Lachem, and went to Har Ephraim. He was traveling from, again, he, we don't know where he originally came from, but he was coming from Beis Lechem, and he comes to Har Ephraim, and he's a failure. I mean, he's a priest, a misguided, perhaps, at best, a misguided priest, uh, but he ultimately serving, uh, you know, serving God, perhaps, but in an illegal way, and not doing the right thing. Um, so again, a levy, someone who's supposed to be of great stature, supposed to be the, the Levim, are supposed to be the teachers of the Jewish people, and has fallen. Ephraim and Yehuda are both seen as leaders of the Jewish people, and will eventually become leaders of the Jewish people, but in both those locations, you're finding a falling apart of sorts. Um, so that's an excellent point. Uh, the, the, the fact that we keep on mentioning those, those same, same, same three factors is a little bit odd. Um, we'll, come, we'll come back to that in, in a What's, what is the significance at this point of pointing out that there's no king? Good. So um, that seems to be the purpose of the story. Um, and we saw that in the story before. It seems to be emphasizing, seems to be emphasizing, had there been authority, 
Now, some, again, see a king or a chauffeur, right? It depends yeah. on your viewpoints, but most see a king as an ideal, um, Barbanel notwithstanding. But had there been a local authority, none of this would have happened. And basically, the anarchy, which we're about to read about, the civil war, sorry for the spoiler alert, that we're going to read about, the terrible, um, terrible, violent rape that we're going to read about, all of that and the lack of any you know, the apathy towards one another, all of that stems from, the, the Pesukim seems to be saying, from the fact that there isn't a king. And again, it dovetails very nicely structurally. The end of Shoftim is basically, it's falling apart because there's no king. Well, here comes the book of Shmuel, and we introduce the monarchy. So it does... Like you said, it's from a crime like Shoal, and then you have mm-hmm. Yehuda, and then... That's right. Well, but, but, well even, even better. Shoal comes from, not Ephraim, he comes from Ephraim's... Uh, uh, Afri- brother comes from or uncle comes from Binyamin um, which is again very much part of the story because what's going to happen to Binyamin again spoiler alert for those uh, who didn't learn the story but they're going to be virtually decimated completely wiped out and again it's, it's, it's going to be okay but we're getting ahead of ourselves Let, let's yes 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 okay so let's talk about a pilegish for a moment what is a pilegish a concubine what is that in halacha um, so we'll just do a quick little class on pilegshim um, some very interesting history that has come up <laughs> okay so <laughs> okay <laughs> so uh, most of what I'm going to share is from Rabbi David Brofsky a teacher in Haritzion um, he did so wrote a great essay on uh, pilegshim and halacha uh, but just the etymology of the word pilegesh for the record uh, some suggest comes from the Aramaic word palga isha. Palga means a half. Isha means a wife. So that's it is a semi-wife, a quasi-wife, I guess we would call it. Um, so there is a lot of debate, though, in terms of what that actually looks like, in what sense. So there seems to be a debate between the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, between the Yushami and the Bavli, about what type of... Uh, relationship there is. The Rishalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, clearly states that it is a full-fledged wife, but there is not the same financial responsibilities. So typically a marriage involves share ksus va'ona, to be married means you are obligated in certain ways. A uh, husband is obligated to his wife in certain ways, and there's a level of support, financial, emotional, physical support. Um, and this over here does not have that, but it is a full-fledged wife in the sense that, for example, a man who has a Pelegish will not be allowed to have relations with any of the Pelegish's immediate relatives, implying that there is a deeper relationship over here. It's not just a, you know, something more casual. It's something which is concrete. It's a wife, but without the regular responsibilities. The Babylonian Talmud is a little more complicated. There are variant texts, which makes it a little more, a little harder to understand. Some understand that there is not even a uh, level of kiddushin that open that the the sense of m- a, a more official appointment uh, or appointment but establishment of one as a spouse. Uh, some say there is kiddushin. Um, many understand that there would need to be a get. There would need to be a divorce even with the pilagesh. Um, and some understand that you would not need a formal divorce. It would just mean end of the relationship, and that would be the end of it. Now all of these commentaries, the the, the simple read of what they're talking about is their understanding is that it's a long lasting relationship. Even if it's true that you don't necessarily need a get, which is, again, a matter of debate, they all see a pilegesh as a long-lasting relationship. Mm-hmm. And, sorry? Doesn't like be some contractual agreement? So that, that's part of the discussion. Do you ha- or it's a non-contractual agreement. It's a, it's a verbal agreement, and without any a formal responsibilities, but it's just an understanding, I guess, again, some, some level of agreement, but it's not written up. And it's not, um, there's no, 
um, again, the regular financial responsibilities and otherwise don't, don't necessarily apply. Now, some do suggest the, the Ramah and the Shulchan Aruch and Ramah, they do discuss what, you know, but this potential idea for a short-term pilegesh, um, the idea basically of, I guess, what we may call prostitution. Um, in other words, they, okay, you're connected to me now, but not in five minutes from now or 10 minutes from now, whatever it is. And basically, um, they discuss this and they all say it is forbidden. Uh, they a host, whole host of reasons, but they, they see this short-term pilegesh, this notion of, well, according to some, you don't need a formal, you, know, you don't need to give a ring, you don't need a hat, and there's certainly no, there's no financial arrangement. And according to some, you don't need to get. So what's stopping a person from having a short-term pilegesh, okay? Which, again, we would essentially described as, as, as uh, prostitution, which is one of the reasons the Ramah gives, and that is that there is this issue of being a Kadesha. There is a prohibition <laughs> in the Torah against prostitution, and some understand that this, and therefore the Ramah Paskin said it would be forbidden as a violation of that biblical prohibition. Now, as an interesting aside, Rav Yaakov Emden, um, who was a tremendous, tremendous, like the unofficial leader of Jewry, um, you know, 300 years ago or so, um, he entertained the idea of permitting <coughs> essentially a short-term pilegesh, um, wrote it up in a tshuva. He suggested that it would prevent some sins, it prevent wasted seed, it would prevent, um, especially the, the era that they're living in is a time right after the Shabbat Tzvi movement, and we know that some of the reiterations of the Shabbat Tzvi movement after he died Many, some of them turned into cults of sort that very much had a lot of uh, licentious behavior um, involved in what they were doing. And so he suggests that this would give a positive, you know, if there are people who perhaps are looking for some of that and therefore they're perhaps attracted to the Shabtai Tzvi movements, this would be a permitted way of, you know, um, releasing some of their drives and desires. He actually quotes, says, it might be a great mitzvah, but he leaves it as, uh, he says, I'm not going to say this on my own, despite the fact that he is basically the, the, the assumed leader of the, of the people. He um, says, only if other people agree. Nobody agreed. And they went crazy. <laughs> the world uh, responded. The rabbis responded very, very uh, violently and with the pen, um, and thought this was a terrible idea. Uh, both in terms of the whole reason we have the ksuva is because uh, the rabbis recognized the need to have formal support for a spouse, uh, and therefore, without that, it is going to cause a people are going to be left stranded, and b the whole institution of marriage obviously is going to be eroded with this notion that a pilegesh, this form of a short-term quasi-wife, you know, wife, um, is just a terrible idea as an institution of marriage. And again, nobody agreed, and far from it, they, they took serious, serious issue with this idea. Every once in a while, you'll hear some you know, out-there rabbi saying, hey, let's try this idea again. And everyone says, no, we said it was a bad Her idea. status is very important because of what she did <coughs> when she turned away from him. So was she married or was she not married? That is really important. That's a good question. Right. So it's, it, it's clear that during the time that they are together, she cannot be to intimate with anyone else. Even if she's not married to him? Even if she's not married. Because there is some, again, it's a quasi-marriage. It's not prostitution as we think about it. Meaning there is, at least while they're together, they're together. And I don't just mean physically, but it's, it's again, a verbal arrangement of sorts. And it is, it, it may not be ish, right? But it still would be prohibited uh, for her to be... With somebody else. Well, what's the cutoff? Like, would they be yeah, like for three months, six months? Yeah. Again, this, every story of pilaksh with except right. What's the famous scenario of a pilaksh that gets sent away? Hagar, right? Hagar is a pilaksh that gets sent away. But the, the assumption is, even from that story, you see, the assumption was they were going to stay forever. You know, meaning the point. It's not so much about time. It's like it's a it's a it's a long term relationship. 
Long-term relationships could sometimes end short, but the mindset is one of a long-term relationship. All that said, I, you know, it's important to mention, um, the Rambam, when he talks about Pilakshim, says that it's something which is only true for kings. Um, some debate whether it is limited to kings, it means kings specifically, or people of great importance. Um, and the truth is, all the stories of Pilakshim that you find in the Torah were always cases where you had, um, not just Pilagesh, but also the sense of any time you have polygamy in the Torah, it's always someone of great importance who is... Excuse me, engaging in this, and, and part of the reason is economical. Um, you know, marriage. Let's let's face it, was very much an economical move. You know, what jobs were available for women back in the day? None. Uh, right. It just that was the reality. The reality is they were they're going to be dependent on on a spouse, and so a person in a position of of wealth and you know that person is able to support more women, and therefore you would find that taking place. Um, so it could be a practical thing. Um, some suggest that the reason he limits it to kings is because the concern is that since it's a not full-fledged relationship, she could go, she doesn't see herself as connected, and therefore could be, um, end up being with a number of different men. You know? And to prevent that, um, you know, and therefore generally it's going to be a problem, but if she's with a king, she wouldn't dare. Or you know, ideally she wouldn't dare uh, because the fact that... Um, she would just be afraid of it. So, but again, there is some discussion about whether it's limited to kings or important people. But again, it's clear that it only took place with important people, which tells us what about our story, bringing it back to our story. Who is this Levi? We don't know his name, but we do know that he's important. Okay? And that's, that's I think, going to play some level of a role in this story. Um, One quick question. Is it like, it's a long relationship? Not to get into a whole long discussion, but like, why not just get married? Like, what's the, what's the hashkafic differences? Like, friend zone. What what do you what do you have to gain? What do you stand to gain? Why, why don't you just have a second wife? If, if you people have multiple wives, then is it is it frowned upon? Is it something that people were not supposed to do? Or is concubines it? were probably frowned upon more. I, I I think I think the simple probably the true and uncomfortable true, you know reason is that um, there's just less financial response. Meaning here um, you could get you know I could hire you and give you a long term contract that has all the severance packages, or you could work for me day by day and I could fire you just because I want to like. So, but I mean, that's from a guy's standpoint. From the girl, why would you ever just say like, no? She was she she had meaning. Good point. Meaning, if you were Pelagish, you had to be a Pelagish. In other words, it's it's a it was a man's right. world, um, right? Meaning, it, it was a world where you wanted to be in a relationship. So practically, a Pelagish would get those rights. At least you know, she practically you wouldn't expect you know that she she'd be fed and she'd be taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it wasn't formalized, so he couldn't be held accountable to it. Mm-hmm. But we'd assume that every decent person would still take care of his pilegesh. Um, and the but, status of children from that relationship. So they are. I mean, they are biological. Biological children. You know, it's it's yeah. biology in Judaism. Mm-hmm. So they'd be her children and his children. Um, and in terms of well, in terms of inheritance, right? Yeah. We saw that with um, um, with the story of um, one of the stories in Shoftim. Blank on who it is now. Well, it is. But yeah, but in terms of inheritance, it wouldn't apply. But certainly he is the father, she is the mother. Uh, but it would impact inheritance without it being in the context of marriage. So if there would be... I guess I'm asking more for the term of, of obligation. Forget it. Inheritance. Mm. Well, in terms of taking care of the child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, again, that's more rabbinic than it is biblical um, in terms of like financial care for children. For the most part, we see that as rabbinic typically. So hard to know how to find that in, in those terms yeah but yeah from, from her perspective i think she's stuck from his perspective it's it's selfish but it makes sense yeah okay not a very comfortable discussion but uh not, that said but let's bring it back to what we're talking about over here so he is a, an important person and so i want to share with you a non-theory that we're gonna i'm just gonna revisit throughout this uh this little section and by non-theory i mean 
it's so obvious that everyone rejects it, but it's so intriguing, so I'm going to bring it up anyway. And that is that the notion that, wait a second, Levi, based Ephraim, you know, from Ephraim, based Lechem, are these the same people? And everyone's like, no, no, of course not, because he's going the wrong direction, right? In the last story, he went from base Lechem, to, he went from Bethlehem to Ephraim, to, to Ephraim, and this person's going from, he lives in Yarkse Ephraim, and his, um, right, how's it, the opening line, right? It says that his Pelegish is from base Lechem, and that's where he ends up traveling, right? So he's going in the opposite direction. Um, I think there's certainly still the intriguing possibility that, you know, again, how does... Can you go Sorry? Ain't traverse up north? Good. We'll come back to that. Good, excellent points. Uh, we'll come back to that. But um, there are clearly some, um, the Malbim understands that this story is taking place while Pesal Micha is still in Ephraim. Okay? So meaning even though we finished that last story and the end of the story is that he traveled up further north, but there are those who understand that this is taking place while Pesal Micha is in Ephraim. So meaning the first part of the saga that we learned last week. Okay? So hear me out. Let, let's, let's entertain this non-theory possibility. In theory, um, again, Mr. Levy, who we know is, a, again, according to many, a grandson, Yonasan, a potentially a grandson of Moshe, travels from Beis Lechem to Ephraim. One way or another, we have to ask ourselves, how does a man from Ephraim meet a nice concubine from, uh, from Beis Lechem, right? So obviously there's some connection. It could be a traveling connection. Um, but can it be that he knows her or whatever, you know, knows the family and basically has this woman come to him or picks her up from Beis Lechem, but... He has a relationship there. So in other words, yes, you know, again, keep in mind, we'll come back to this. When he came from Beis Lechem to Ephraim, was he a prestigious person? Not at all. If you recall, he was destitute, right? In the last story, again, bear with me on this theory. And again, I want to be clear. I'm just confusing you all because no one agrees with this, but let's just entertain it for the fun of it. Um, but because I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I think it, it kind of, okay, but hear me out. Um, he came from Beis Lechem because he was searching for food. He was a nobody. He was called a nar over and over again, right? But then he comes to Micha and potentially grows, right? I mean, things are comfortable there. He takes care of him and things, and his stature grows. He's a priest for this temple and it's an important temple, right? Um, and perhaps in that time, he then marries a woman. And again, he grows in prominence and marries a woman from Beis Yehuda or quasi marries a woman from Beis Yehuda, from Beis Lechem, excuse me, who ends up living with him, right? How does he know her? Because he used to live there. Okay, so let's just keep that non-theory. And again, non-theory, I'm not, I don't want to be so radical, but no one agrees to this. But let's, let's see how that would potentially play out in this, uh, in this narrative. So, Vatizna Alab Pilagsho. So this concubine of his, um, she was Mizana, which literally means she committed adultery. Vatelech Mito Elbeis Aviha. And she went from him, she left to her father's house. Elbeis Lechem Yehuda. She goes back home to her father in Beis Lechem. And she's there for four months. Okay. So the Gemara, the Chazal, or sages do not see this as znus. They do not see this as actual um, adultery. Um, and they suggest two possible reasons or two different proofs. And they suggest that really what this is, is a minor infraction of sorts. She did something wrong. He got really upset with her. And she basically ran off. That's the, that's the way the Talmud understands it. That's the way our sages understand it. What's compelling them, and, and actually learn from this story, they say from here it's important to learn never to get really upset because you see one man got upset at his wife and a, a tribe was almost wiped out from that episode, right? That was the catalyst, that was the impetus for this entire story, okay? What's compelling them to do so? Two things. One is that if she really was engaged in znus, in adultery, then... Um, um, okay, according to some, he would be forbidden to her, right? And the fact that he ends up reuniting with her indicates that she is not 
Now, that's also assuming that he follows Jewish law, which we know already that that era, maybe well, they don't all follow. Line, no? Well, they're suggesting that they, she would be forbidden, and therefore, even as a concubine, she would be. The second point is more of a technical point, and that is, Vatizna alav pilak show. Those words are very odd. I mean, how do they translate it in the, in the article? Or? She deserted She deserted Really? Yeah. Yeah. Turned away from him. Okay. Ah, okay. Anyway, um, fine. What can you do? Okay, translation. You think you lost in translation. Vatizna, literally, Vatizna, Alav, she went astray. Alav means to him, literally on him, but to him, Pilak Show. Okay, his concubine went astray to him. Now, when you, when you commit adultery, you're doing it away. A person committing adultery does it away from their spouse, not Alav to him. It's the opposite. You, you know, you, you go away from it. It's not may alav, like from him. You, you go astray from him, not alav to him. Unless you do it in front of him. So, ah, excellent. So, the, you unless you do it in front of him, oh. right? So, it's so good. So, the, again, our sages are coming from the fact that it's not your typical way of, you, commit adultery, you don't commit adultery to your husband, you commit adultery against your husband. And the fact alav, the Hebrew term alav means that it was to him, which therefore implies that if something happened to him, and that's why they're suggesting it's something much more minor, some little thing, she made some mistake, and he lost his cool, okay? Um, that said, the Radak says, no, read it literally. She really committed adultery, so what does the word alav mean to him? to the point that she had no shame. That basically was something that she didn't commit adultery to him, that wouldn't make sense, but a love means almost like in front of him. Not literally, but in the sense that she didn't care about the fact that she was seen by him, caught by him. She was, she, it was, it was you know, she didn't really care about that at all, okay? So it couldn't be that she, and I don't know how the Hebrew could be that, she was refusing to have relations to him, because that's to him. Right, that would be to him, but the word zenus implies some form of turning away. I mean, certainly zenus typically means adultery, um, but um, yeah, so I, 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 I yeah, yeah. Um, now, right, so, and, and the truth is, the Radak's approach, you know, one thing that, that troubled me about this passage is, you know, after the four months, he decides to go visit her. Why does he wait four months? See if she's pregnant. Excellent, right? So if you take the simple approach, I didn't see any of the, the Pashtanim, any of the simple approaches explain why he waits four months. But according to the approach that it was actually znus mamish, literally adultery, and then I understand why he waits four months, and that perhaps is a proof, or at least a support, to that approach. Okay. Um, which, by the way, is, again, if you, you take this whole approach in its, in its totality, um, so basically we're saying that really she went astray. Really, she, they should not be together, but the only thing here, I mean, the only, he doesn't care about that. He just doesn't want the shame of her pregnancy, right? But if she's not pregnant... Then it's fine, right? I'm not sure what that says about him. I, I doesn't paint the best of lights in my mind. Um, we'll see. His picture doesn't get much better. Okay. Vayakam isha. So after a while, after four months, her husband gets up. Vayelachacharen goes after her. Ledaber aliba to speak to her heart. Lahashiva to return her to him. Vinaraimo again. He's a prominent individual. He has a attendant with him. Vitzemed chamorim and he has a pair of donkeys. The commentators understand a pair in the sense one is for him. One is to give to her if she comes back. And she brings him into her house. And the father of the woman, see, it seems like they met outside, it sounds like, and basically she sees him, maybe in the street or whatever, and she brings him into the house. Her father sees him. And he is overjoyed to greet him. Um, there's some terminology here, which is a little bit reminiscent of whom. A couple of the terms over here kind of have a certain echo um, from, uh, from two different places by the same character about the same person. Anybody? That's true. 
not Rivka, uh, but yes, there, Rivka does bring, right? Rivka sees and brings it to the house, uh, but actually with Yisro and Moshe, right? There's an, oh, I, I, not too many places that we call a person a chosno, father-in-law, and so the Vitzvio Vesavio, we know that Sipora ends up bringing her into the house, uh, or the daughters bring Moshe into the house. Vayismach Likraso is later on when Yisro comes out, Parshas Yisro, that they see each other and they're overjoyed in seeing each other, right? It's, 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 it's subtle, but again, if you have that I'm Moshe. Reaching with your non- I, I'm, I'm <laughs> reaching, that's a reach. That's a reach. It just it struck me as uh, I agreed. It's not uh, overt, but certainly according to Chazal, who see this person as a descendant. Uh, sorry, sorry. According to the non-theory, who is the same person as the person in Pesel Micha, who according to our sages is the descendant of Moshe, then some of that terminology is a little bit more meaningful. But again, no one accepts that. So uh, he, the father of the young woman, he like holds on to him. He's, you know, in other words, he wants to keep him there. And he makes him stay or he sits him there for three days. And they eat and they drink and they stay there. What's the word with the double talk there? What do you mean? Oh, Chosno Avihanara. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Interesting. Right. Could have one or the other. Could have been. Okay. I'm not sure. And they eat and they drink and they stay there. It's the fourth day. And they wake up in the morning. And they get ready to go. First eat and then go. Don't leave yet. You know, don't leave yet. Eat and stay a little longer. Stay a little longer. Fine. They eat bread. And they drink. Now, once you're drinking, it's going to be harder to travel, even back in the day. Riding donkeys under the influence is also illegal, apparently. Uh, that's because, uh, you know, the, the commentators say, you already drink. Uh, not a good idea to travel, okay? Listen, stay here, sleep here, and let it be good for your heart. Okay? And he got up to go. And his father-in-law continued, you know, really intensely. And he stayed. He can't say no. I mean, he seems to be like... Guy. He could say no. Yeah, he could say no, but he chooses to chooses to stay. It's a good question. I, this whole passage is one big question to me. But yeah, good question. He could leave if he wants, but he he gives in. He seems to be persuaded. He wakes up on the fifth day. Right? Uh, it's, it's like a little comical. Uh, he says, "No, eat again. Let's wait a little bit until the day passes." And they both eat. Right? I mean, okay. So he continuously is, is, is encouraging him. Let me help you. Let me feed you. Let me feed you. Smart enough to drink on the fifth day. Yes, correct. Excellent. Right? And the mother makes that point. Excellent. Right? On the third, on the fourth day, he drank, and that's why he gave in. On the fifth day, right? And to someone answering your question, on the fifth day. He doesn't drink, and so he could leave. Who They get up to go, him, his concubine, and his attendant. The day is weakened, starting to set. You know, weakened meaning it's like the second part of the day. It's no longer the strength of the day. The day is, so to speak, going away. Sleep here. The, uh, the day is like... Settling down, um, okay. Linup, linpo, sleep here. Vitav levacha, and let it be good for you. Vishkamtem machar ledarkechem, and get up tomorrow to go on your way. Valacha lecha, then you'll go on your way. Okay, what's the deal? What? What's this? Is this is again? It's comical, right? Why is he constantly attempting to make his son-in-law ish stay over? Any thoughts? Mm-hmm. Sorry? <laughs> to kill him. <laughs> okay. Um, so he wants yeah. to make sure that 
he's not really mad at the daughter and his daughter's still on like hey I'm not sure you're gonna take good care of her give her at once or something happens so okay I'm gonna make sure everything's cool before I let her go Okay, I think that's a, that's a very fair uh, fair assumption, right? And so, you know, I think one, one, one good way of understanding this is that, and, uh, you know, he wants to ensure, whether it's for his daughter's sake, that's a very uh, noble way of looking at it, on a selfish level. Again, he, when he sees this man, he's thrilled, right? Meaning he, you know, from, from the father of the concubine's perspective, like, this is, this is good for my daughter, right? I want this. Um, so he wants to make sure the relationship is stable. The more he could be there to kind of play therapist or whatever, you know, the better it is. The longer things are going well, the, the better it is for him. So simply put, he wants to ensure the stability of the relationship uh, is, is certainly uh, a legitimate um, approach. Um, is it a Yako situation? You know, keep him there, maybe he's going to work for him or do something or give him money. Or, okay, okay. I don't know. It could be, it could be. Um, it's interesting that, um, you know, we don't, we don't find any hints of anything, of anything. TV seems to be very friendly. It seems, I mean, overly friendly. It's a little much. Um, but we don't, we don't, but yeah, I mean, if you think of that, that Yaakov, piece of father-in-laws, it has that negative connotation but over here. He's just been feeding him and supporting him and taking care of him. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's, it's so, you know, some commentators suggest that, you know, we're going to get to a very, very terrible group of people who are um, very inhospitable. And so perhaps what the text is trying to do is demonstrate that most people were extremely hospitable. You know, and this man was very hospitable to his son-in-law. Okay, maybe he had personal reasons to do so. But perhaps it's being done to contrast the lack of kindness which we're about to witness. And that could be. Um, or maybe he's just trying to engender good feelings. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. in contrast in sort of to, to what Ari had said, it's not to see what his intentions are, but to try and... Set a positive tone. Right. Set a positive tone. Right. 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 So whether testing rep for the sake of the relationship. Right. And I think that that I think is a, uh, yeah. I think both both those pieces that he's doing it for the sake of the relationship could could certainly be there. Um, and with your permission or whatever, I'm going to go back to my non-theory for a second. Let's think about this. Okay. If 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 again going back, we assume this Levi is the same Levi. So let's think about this for a second. Last time he was in Beis Lechem, what kind of care did he get? What kind of food did he get? Assuming he's the same kid, right? Same, same as the Nar. He got nothing. He left because Beis Lechem wasn't feeding him. Okay? He was basically a Levi. He was dependent on others. And no one supported him. Right? But now he comes back as a very wealthy individual, a powerful individual. And they're rolling the red carpet out. Right? In some way, perhaps, in that respect, while that's a positive... But it also speaks to a certain inequality, a terrible inequality, right? Meaning that if it's the same person, he was just there, again, 10, 15, 20, who knows how many years ago, and was being completely ignored because he was a nobody, and now just because he comes back as someone important, he gets all that food, it actually makes that giving and all that food all that much more distasteful and all that much more actually demonstrating a society which has a certain lack in their, in their moral character, right? So again, if we see it's the same person, then it would cre create this glaring contrast between who he was and he was treated and when he comes back and all of a sudden the, the red carpet, it's, you know, it's very movie-esque, but it also speaks to a really poor society which just focuses on the rich and the wealthy and doesn't really care for those who really need the care. Theory. Okay, let's keep on going. This time the guy said he, he's not interested. He wasn't interested in staying around. They get up and they travel to an opposite a place called Yuvus. This is Yerushalayim. So traveling by Yerushalayim. And again, he has a pair of donkeys. And his Pilegesh is with him. And they are next to Yuvus. And the day was coming down a lot, meaning it's basically nightfall. 
The young lad says, attendant says to the master, Let's turn and go to the city. We're right here. We're next to the city. Let's go and, and sleep here. His master said, Let's not go. We're not going to go to a city, a foreign city, which is not part of our brethren. We're, not going to, we're only going to go to a Jewish city, and we will go until Giva. Okay? What's his intent? Presumably, he thinks that I'll be safer among my brethren, among those who know me, right? Which obviously drips with irony, because what's going to happen is he's going to be anything but safe. So over here, again, just, one of the, uh, just painting this really dire picture, he thinks to himself, of course, I'm going to be safe among brethren. It turns out that he'd be a lot safer had he turned into Yavus, and his own brothers turn on him, as we'll see. Vayomer Lenaro, um, and he turns to his attendant, let's go close to one of the places, he clearly is not sure if the, you know, the geography, are we going to encounter Giva first, or Rama first, they go, and the sun completely sets, by Giva, which is in the area of Vinyamin. Okay, and they turn there. To go settle, to go rest in Giva. They go stay in a street of the city. You know, typically, cities had one major street. Okay? And no one welcomes them into the house. No one cares for them, so they're waiting. They're waiting in the middle of the street, hoping that someone will welcome them in, and it doesn't happen. Okay? Vineish. Zucking. There is an old man, who's coming from his work, clearly tired, uh, from the field at night. He happens to be from Ephraim, living in Giva. But most of the people are Benjamite people. Okay? So, um, but this man, who is not really a local, what does he do? He lifts his eyes and he sees. What does it say that by? Which other hachnas is orchim? Does it say v'yisayin avayar? Avram, right? Excellent. I say ish. Okay, so he lifts up his eyes and he sees ish oreach the guest v'rechovayir in the city in the street of the city v'yomra ish hazakin ana selech u'me'ayin tavo. Where are you coming? Where are you going? Where are you coming from? Um, okay, it's interesting. There's a lot of questions in all in both these stories, if you if you recall, with with Micha when when the Levi comes to Micha, he asks him like, where do you like, what are you doing here? And when the people from uh, done, come to the Levi, they, they ask him, what are you doing here? There's, always, there's a lot of questions. I don't know what to make of it. Uh, but here too, like, there's always like, who are you? There's always this question like, who are you? Well, tell me a little about yourself. Um, you know, again, to contrast the Avram, he just welcomes them in. There's, there's no, none of that questioning. I don't know what to make of it, but there, there's, just, there's an odd amount of questioning of identity in these stories. Okay? Um, and they say to him, I'm traveling. From Beis Lechem until the edges of Ephraim, Misham Anochi. From there I am. Ve'elech ad Beis Lechem Yehuda, and I went. I recently went to Beis Lechem, and that's where I'm coming from. This Beis Hashem Holech. I'm going to the house of God. Okay, which was news to us because we didn't know that before. So we'll come back to what that means in a moment. Ve'en Ishma Sefosiyabaisa. No one's welcoming me into their house. Okay, so he explains where he's coming from, where he's going. He randomly throws in there that he's going to the house of God, even though, as far as we're concerned, he's not. Uh, but where's the house of God at this point? Shiloh, okay. So it is somewhat on the way. Um, right? I don't know. No? Okay. Dean, that's your job. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, and he complains, don't take me to the house. But what does this mean, going to the house of Hashem? Okay, so the Malbim suggests what he is saying over here, he's trying to identify himself. Again, he understands not just a geographical 
a, ge- a question of geography. He's trying to identify himself, and he's saying, I am part, he said, I'm from Ephraim. So I have to clarify. I'm not going to Pesel Micha, which is an Ephraim. I am going, not literally going, but figuratively, I am part of Beis Hashem. I'm not part of the, not, you know, the, the people who serve this other idol. I am part of Hashem. So again, it's not literally going, but it's more identifying himself as a devout person. That's the classic approach for the, I think, one of the last times, the back to the non-theory. Um, we saw before, how does the Levi refer to, who is the Levi serving? He's not really serving the idol, right? We remember when the, the last encounter, we're revolving around this, the people of Dun say, hey, serve, you know, ask Elohim and ask your Torah. And he says, no, it's Lashem. Right? Basically, he sees, and again, we spoke about this, there is a certain element of being misguided. So the term, Vesbeis Hashem and Yiholech, right, actually could be read more literally, I'm going to the house of God, because that's actually his house. If it is what he believes to be the Beis Hashem, it's not just a figure of speech. I'm heading, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in God. I, you know, my feet take me to Jerusalem, you know, like the, you know, a poetic statement. No, he's saying, I'm going to the house of God. That's his house. He lives in the Beis Hashem because he is the priest of Hashem, or so he thinks, in the house of Micha. Maybe he's looking for me. Right. Um, okay, so again, that, that's just uh, continuing that, that stream of, uh, of thoughts. Okay, says the, says the, says the man. Um, Oh, the Gam Teven Gam. Sorry, sorry. So it continues the the Levi. The Gam Teven Gam Mispo Yeshlem Chamarini says, "I have uh, straw and I have food. I have everything for my donkeys. The Gam Lechem Biyain. I have food." He says, "I don't need anything." Yeshliv la Masecha v'lanar Mavadecha. My my maid servant. Uh, you know your maid servant, right? He's describing himself in a very um, humbling term to this old man. Yeah, he's he's trying to find favor in his eyes. He's saying, calling him his master. He said to me, my you know to me, I am your servant. Um, my my Pilega, she is your maidservant and my attendant. We have all these things. A master called Dover, nothing is lacking. Okay. Vayomer Haish, and the man Azakin, Shalom Lach. The man said, Peace to you. Rakom Machsorcha Alai says, No, all your needs are on me. Rak Barachov Altalin, please don't sleep on the streets. Vayivyel the Beso, he brings him into his house. Vayava Lachamorim, and he mixes food for the donkeys. And they clean their feet. And they eat and they drink. They are gladdening their hearts, meaning they're eating, they're enjoying themselves. The people of the city. People of uh, lacking in a yoke, meaning rebellious people. Surround the house. They are banging on, pressing on the door. They turn to the old man and say, that man, ah, very good. Take, let the man out, right? Um, send the man out, the man who came to your house, and let us know him. And the, typical, and the term over here, the no, no, not the idea of knowing, as we know in, in Torah, means knowing means intimacy. They basically want to um, rape this man. That's what they are asking or demanding of the old man. Send him out. We want to do this to him. Why and do you wait till he's in yeah, the house? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Just, he's in the street. That's the one to do. Good question. Him. Great question. Um, that's an excellent question. Um, so this is what, what, what we're going to do. We're going to pause over here. Um, Sodom is exactly what is on everyone's mind because the parallels are overwhelming. Um, you know, the Avram parallels, obviously, the Avram story immediately precedes um, the, the Sodom story, but now this sounds very much like Sodom. So if you have the time, uh, take a moment before next week 
just read through the story of Sodom because really what all the commentators do is really line up the two stories side by side and compare and contrast the two stories. And we'll see how much they have in common, uh, how much they don't have in common. One way or another, we're about to read a very, very, very difficult passage to read, a very sad, uh, truly difficult. It's like a, it's hard to, to get through. Um, but at the same time, what we also want to look at is the clear uh, connection or lack of connections or parallels to the story of Sodom. So again, take a moment to, to look through that and God willing, we will pick up and really contrast those two stories next week. Have a good one. Morning. We have uh, been going on a bit of a tangent in our in our Masechus Brachos in the second parak. We're up to the seventh Mishnah. Uh, the tangent has been around Rabban Gamliel. Uh, we started off with the story about Rabban Gamliel regarding Kriya Shema. Then we kind of moved on to a whole bunch of stories about Rabban Gamliel. And the seventh Mishnah once again has a story unrelated to our general topic of Shema about Rabban Gamliel. The Mishnah says Uchshemis Tavi Avdo Kibel Alav Tanchumin that when Rabban Gamliel's slave they had slaves back then and he had a slave named Tavi. And when his slave Tavi died, he sat Shiva, which uh, seemed a bit odd. His students asked question. Didn't we learn that we don't, you don't, you don't sit Shiva for your slave who dies? What, what's going on over here? So Amr Laham, he responds, He says he's not, he's unique. He is literally, he says he's kosher. Now, what does that mean? What is he trying to convey in that statement? So there are two ways of understanding this. Uh, the, the simple read of the Babli, of the Babylonian Talmud, seems to be saying that he's saying that Tavi, as we see in a couple of stories in the Talmud, was actually uh, quite a scholar. He was actually a Talmud Chacham. And we do have a, a, a law, which is not so well known, but when you have a real true scholar, a true leader who dies, then really everyone is obligated to sit Shiva. Certainly those who are directly influenced by this leader. Um, so again, we typically only sit Shiva for, for, our, you know, for our family members, if uh, heaven forbid they pass. But there is a, a law, certainly a person who has a set teacher and someone who is an undisputed leader, there is a notion of having some form of shiva, some form of mourning, formal mourning for them. So that could be what he's answering. Kasher Haya, he was a great scholar. He, um, he was someone of great prestige, and therefore it's appropriate to sit shiva. The Ushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, seems to understand it differently. Um, it seems to be understanding that since he had such a close relationship. There, there was this, uh, the, the exact terminology of the Rishami is, She'avdo ha-mishamsho kertsono, chaviv alav kivno. That it says a, a servant who serves a person according to all his wills is beloved, according to his will, is beloved like a son. And it seems like there was this very, very deep relationship. And therefore, even though there may not have been a typical obligation, but because of the deep and loving relationship between him and his servant, Tavi, he therefore sat Shiva because of the incredibly close relationship. And therefore, he says, yes, this is exceptional, but normally we would not be sitting Shiva for an Ebed. In the next mission, we're going to get back to the laws of Krishma, and we'll pick that up on Sunday.